Hey everyone, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. Um, I'm Steve, and uh, we, today we have Brian Grow, or Brain Grow, I'm sorry. And then joining us today from Quest Hydro, we have. Uh, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. <laughs> we have Jared, and then. Um, Coleman. I think your name was Col Coleman. Yep. Yeah, Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. I just sometimes people have a different name on their uh, on their hangouts, so I wanted to make sure I didn't get it wrong. Yeah, Retzloff is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Um, so uh, thanks for uh, before we get. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, they were with us originally on the uh, Mammoth P episode, but um, unfortunately uh, they had to go before we could get to their segment, and they were kind enough to join us today. So I uh, really appreciate them taking the time to uh, to get out and reach out to us and uh, you know share their knowledge with us. Um, I also have a, another quick announcement. Uh, I do have the new dates for the um, aquaponic cannabis classes at Ouroboros. Uh, the next one will be July 22nd and 23rd. Uh, the following one after that will be August 19th and 20th. Uh, after that will be September 23rd and 24th. And then after that will be October 21st and 22nd. So if you are looking to come hang out and see some you know, live in-person aquaponic cannabis uh, and take a class, um, the, this month we might not have the farm, you know, the grow online, but definitely by August we'll have the, uh, the grow and you know, we'll have all kinds of cool stuff to show you guys and to talk about here in the, uh, coming up that I can't quite talk about yet, but you're definitely going to want to come out here uh, for the in-person class because you'll get quite the experience. I will assure you that without uh, sharing more than I'm allowed to at the moment. Um, alrighty, uh, now that we have that out of the way, um, uh, I believe uh, Roger and Marty will be joining us in a little bit. Uh, they were having some issues earlier. Um, thanks a lot for, uh, to Quest Hydro. Uh, I had a chance to meet them while we were at the DGC Cup, and I got a chance to talk to Jared. And he, I think we were talked for half an hour. It was really cool. So uh, he was. Uh, I really wanted to get him on the show. We also, you know, in aquaponics grows, uh, humidity is a huge factor, especially if you're growing in your basement. You know, you're going to want to not warp the floor upstairs. You're going to worry about molds. Um, you know, it's going to be an issue for you uh, if you're growing aquaponics in a humid in a greenhouse. You know, too much humidity, especially in the winter, can cause mold problems and all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, humidity is very important, and it's really awesome that they could take the time to join us. Thanks for joining us, guys. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, uh, you know, Quest has been uh, uh, is, is one brand um, under a larger umbrella, uh, but we've really been in in the uh, you know the gardening industry. Um, uh, for about seven, eight years now. Um, I personally have been with uh, the parent company, which is called Thermostore, for uh, a decade now. You know, a variety of different experiences from service to quality manager in our manufacturing operations, worked uh, construction rental, um, and they were kept trying to get me over on the gardening side uh, due to some of my history, and, and uh, it's been great ever since. So, um, Again, thanks for having us on the show, Jared. Yes, and um, you know, I joined uh, with Quest at the beginning of this year. Um, more of a background with environmental design, but I've been uh, holding it down here in Colorado, New Mexico, as a rep. I'm just getting to know my territory and learning a lot. Yeah, I, and I primarily work uh, uh, New England, New York, New Jersey, uh, and then venture down Florida, Puerto Rico. Absolutely. You have a big territory, <laughs> Puerto Rico. That's fun. So it's been, uh, 
Yeah, it's been a, a great ride uh, for Quest as a uh, as a climate control, as a dehumidifier manufacturer. Um, you know, we really hit our, our stride or our niche uh, in the market, kind of identifying that overhead dehumidification had some substantial value over some of the portable stuff that had characteristically been in the market. Um, you know, we found people buying either like our flood restoration equipment or some of our residential basement and crawl space kind of dehumidification equipment and using it in their cultivations. And, uh, um, you know, we've really been able to dial in and, and provide a nice uh, suite of, of solutions, um, you know, larger capacity, really focused on energy efficiency and uh, a great warranty for a product that's built in the U.S. Um, so it's been, uh, it's, it's been good. Absolutely. Awesome. So why don't you guys tell us about some of the challenges you guys run into or some of the, you know, uh, common questions that you guys get from, um, you know, uh, people that are, in, you know, realize they don't realize maybe they, don't, they, they need a dehumidifier uh, or, um, you know, a commercial operation, you know, at, uh, at what point is it, you know, worthwhile to, to uh, we'll start off that first question. I would say for me in, in my territory, being in Colorado, New Mexico, um, the big educational piece is explaining to people the importance of, of dehumidification in, in, in a closed environment. You know, a lot of people rely on intaking outside air and exhausting and just explaining to them, you know, the risks that, are, that you take on and, when, uh, you know, when drawing air from outside, you know, there's harmful particles and not to mention pests from the front range that can uh, invade your indoor space. and um, I would say basically a big question. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, I have 10 lights and my ceiling is this high and this many you know, dimensions, but um, how many dehues do I need? And, and it's really uh, explaining to, to the end users or to potential end users that um, it's really about calculating your, your plant consumption um, because that'll give us an idea of how much water is going to be active in the air. Um, kind of sticks to our motto of water in, water out is what I use for, for sizing. But I would say that's the biggest one. Yeah, sizing is definitely one of the, the biggest questions we get. Yep. <clears throat> How about you, uh, your territory, Coleman, so, in humid areas? Yeah, you know, um, so more often than not, you know, we're, we're kind of singled out in a lot of instances to indoor gardens. Uh, again, the, uh, the whole idea with an indoor garden is to be able to precisely control your atmosphere and air changes and things like that. So, um, you know, characteristically, any moisture that's being uh, transpired from the plant, which is basically how many gallons you're, you're feeding uh, on a daily basis, is being contained in that room. Um, you know, direct ventilating usually has, uh, you know, either uh, smell issues with the, with the neighbors down the road or, or in a you know, particular uh, municipalities. Um, the uh, 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 Jared touched on, on you know the possibility of, of you know when when you are bringing in that outside air the the possibility of bringing in mold or 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 pests with it. Um, so it's it's really about the understanding that we're starting with a sealed room to begin with. Um, if you're running CO2, characteristically, you're going to seal that room as best as you can to keep the CO2 in the room. Um, uh, and, and from there, it's a, it's a matter of you know. You got to be able to handle the transpiration rate, which is truly 
98% of what you're watering on a daily basis. So if I'm putting down, you know, 10 gallons a day, that's 10 gallons being consumed and transpired right back up into the room. And if we're not doing something to pull the uh, moisture out of the air, your, uh, your relative humidities will uh, certainly go too high and then you run the risks of uh, powdery mildew or botrytis. Um, you see a lot of people running very high relative humidities that are just really kind of playing the game, uh, running the risk. Uh, a lot of times I kind of equate it to, uh, you know, we all were at that age where we went out to the bars and, and uh, you know, perhaps, play, perhaps played around a little too much. Uh, you know, if you got lucky, you walked away without the STD. <laughs> and that's kind of what PM is, you know. Um, so there's a lot of guys that uh, are able to run with it for a long time. But if, uh, if you do come down with PM, now we really got to take preventative measures. And, you know, really, you know, that preventative measure is, uh, you know, the benchmark is 55% relative humidity is what mold requires to propagate. And so, um, you know, uh, my advice to everybody is as soon as you switch to flower, uh, there's no way I'm going above 55 just for risk mitigation. You know, you've invested all that time uh, up until that point. Uh, at that point, it's about man managing your risk and making sure that that, uh, uh, that, that crop comes to ours. How, how would you go about adjusting that uh, equation you're talking about the uh, for for you know a hydroponic system, for example, or an aquaponic system, where you have you know kind of a set volume of water in the room? So with a with a hydro system, you know you're looking at well, what are you topping off your reservoir with every day? Is truly what your plants are consuming and transpiring back into the room. And like I said, it's a, it's a 97, 98% of what the plant consumes. Uh, it's really only holding on to two or 3% for cell structure growth. Um, so you, uh, it's pretty much a one-to-one. -one. So when we, we do that sizing calculation, uh, you know, I really push you or try to back you into what your watering schedule looks like on a daily basis. So if somebody's watering 25 gallons a day, you know, I kind of seek out, is any of that drained to waste? You know, if five gallons of that is drained to waste, we really only have 20 gallons being consumed by the plants. Um, the magic is in understanding the math that there's eight pints in a gallon. So at 20 gallons a day times eight pints, that's 160 pints per day. Um, and most, you know, all dehumidifiers are measured based upon their pints per day of performance. And so that makes it a real easy like Jared called it, a water in, water out. Water into the room has to equal the water capacity being removed from the room. Does that make sense, everybody? Yep. Um, so we had a, a question sometimes for- Sometimes it's, 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 it's so simple, people are like, whoa, are you kidding me? It's that simple? Exactly. <laughs> uh, That was a great way to state it. Uh, I've never had someone, you know, explain it that simply. So when you start to look at an, an aquaponics uh, uh, setup, you know, the, uh, the, the gray area there ends up being truly the, the tanks that the fish are occupying. 
Um, so you, you really got to look at an open surface area calculation with agitated water and what temperature that's at to try and calculate an evaporation rate. So it's not just what the plants are consuming, you also have an evaporation off of the tank. Um, I would say call us and we will work you, th work you through that calculation because it's, it's a little more involved. Awesome. That's a uh, great for people to know, uh, you know, that are maybe trying to, you know, figure this out on their on their own at home. That uh, might just be easier for them in that particular case, just to give you a buzz and and ask, you know, you guys directly which one they should buy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of times the you know the the biggest uh, question uh, after that how do I size is is they really want to understand. Um, how much how much dehumidification they need because their air conditioner is pulling out moisture, mm -hmm. um, and really what I explained to them is the understanding that yes we can back into a BTU calculation on how much air conditioning you have and try and figure out what what the inefficiency in your air conditioner is and how much moisture it's going to pull out. Um, what you're really sizing your dehumidifiers is for is come lights out. Once your lights go out, your, your AC is going to be running either much less or not at all, depending upon what market you live in. Um, and that's where you truly need that hour-by-hour hour capacity of, of your dehumidification equipment. Um, you know, the other thing that happens during lights out is your temperature drops, um, and relative humidity is relative to temperature, and it's an inverse relationship. So as soon as temperature drops, your relative humidity skyrockets. Awesome. Uh, we had a quick question from chat. It says, uh, Derek asks, can you touch on lung rooms? Is that something you guys uh, incorporate into your system at all? I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Just based upon the name, I'm, I haven't done any specific work. Okay. Maybe you can explain yeah, uh, the, the concept. Yeah, I'm, oh, is right. it based upon pressure? What was I'm sorry? Is is a lung room based upon pressure, like a positive or a negative or a? I'm not. I'm not sure. I've never heard of the term before either. I was just. Uh, it was just oh. a, a question someone asked in chat. So. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Um. <laughs> So you, I saw you guys were in a high times recently. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I believe the uh, the issue just came out today. Um, we were featured as uh, or highlighted uh, by High Times' uh, choice as the uh, best dehumidifier, and they featured uh, a new product of ours, which is a a split system dehumidifier. So. Much like your your split air conditioners that are out on the market, it's got an outdoor condenser, so it doesn't add any heat into your room. Um, um, it's rated at 185 pints per day, and when it's running, it does a third of a ton of cooling. So it's it's not meant to replace your air conditioner, but uh, anybody that's realized that they need more dehumidification and are already you know up against the ceiling or, or capability capacity of their air conditioner. It really presents a nice uh, a nice option for people. Um, you know the other way that I see it being used oftentimes is because when it's running, it's putting you know, 4,300 BTUs, so that's a third of a ton of cooling into the room. 
which pairs well with like our model 105, uh, which would be putting in approximately 4,300 BTUs. So if you pair those two up, you're really at a zero sum game and you're almost at 300 bytes per day worth of capacity. Awesome. So kind of some interesting uh, different ways to play a couple of different pieces of equipment together to still get that most energy efficient uh, application um, without really increasing the heat load in the room. Awesome. So yeah, and that's something else that people aren't aware of is that a lot of the dehumidifiers out there do create a lot of heat. So you know that's some of the different. Do you want to talk about the you know the differences maybe between your type of de, uh, you know the dehumidifiers that you guys use and produce versus some of the others out there? Sure. The the you know the the heat that's being discharged into the room. Um, for a, a traditional dehumidifier, you are putting the warm, dry air back in the room, and that's really important. Um, you know, all of our dehumidifiers are ductible, uh, and I always uh, you know, try and caution people. That means the dehumidifier doesn't have to be inside the room, but you do have to duct that, that warm air into the room and, and a return to the dehumidifier uh, outside the room. If you just duct the heat out, uh, you just really basically bought yourself a really expensive ventilation fan. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the heat that's generated in your dehumidifier, uh, some of it is, is based upon wattage consumption, uh, of the compressor and your, your, uh, your impeller fan and your, uh, relays and controls and things like that. But the majority of the BTUs that are being generated are, are truly a function of the, the refrigerant system doing heat exchange. You know, we're, we're pulling the heat out of the air, both sensible heat, which is the temperature heat, and then latent heat, which is the moisture heat in the air. Uh, we're absorbing that heat to allow the air to cool down to the point where it hits its dew point. And that's when the water that's in the air condenses on the evaporator coil and the moisture comes out of the air. So for that refrigerant gas to change state back and do its whole job all over again you know it goes through a compressor and then it goes through the condenser where that heat is exchanged back into the air so i know that's a really kind of a complicated uh explanation um you know but that's really uh, why a dehumidifier rejects heat back into the room now where your heat savings comes in with a dehumidifier like ours is all based upon energy efficiency so really how much how much moisture are we able to pull out with every pass of air, um, or how many pints per day uh, or pints per kilowatt hour um, is our equipment able to pull out? And so once you begin looking at us versus the competition, um, so our, our model, uh, our Quest Dual 105 is the world's most energy efficient dehumidifier. So as it's pulling out 8.8 .8 pints per kilowatt hour, your little Home Depot special is maybe pulling 3.8, 3.9. Um, same thing with uh, a lot of the gardening company brands. Um, uh, so you know we're pulling out twice as much water with the same amount of electricity. So you're truly getting um, more performance pulling out more water with less heat. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, so the gentleman who asked about the lung room says, a room separate from your grow, a place you can add your fresh air, filters, humidity, CO2, and the same place that then run the air CO2 from the lung room to the grow rooms. Kind of like a, a lung for your grow. Okay, essentially like the utility, utility room. <clears throat> yeah. Kind of like a room where you'd mix up your CO2 and your fresh air or and then dehumidify it or you know dial in the temp and then vent it to the rest of the rooms uh, interesting concept i think that's pretty much what he was just describing wasn't it how you conduct all your yeah. uh, all your stuff outside the room or whatever yeah but th i guess uh, he, he was that, just Good. yeah the, du the ducting tends to be more of a, a like a space savings you know a lot of times we see um, you know, if you're if you got a, a big warehouse grow, you've built rooms inside a warehouse, so now you have this big uh, open, clean mezzanine above the ceiling of the rooms. Um, so I see people, you mount your dehumidifier up there, duck the air to and from the dehumidifier, and then it's not hanging in the room. So it's it's one of those things from a, either a space perspective. Um, you know, I see a lot of Michigan basements. You know, you got low, low-hanging ceiling height. Um, it's kind of hard to hang a dehumidifier for there and still get your plants and your lights in. Um, so I can put it outside the room and duck the air to and from the dehumidifier. Um, to answer the participants' question, um, I guess I haven't seen uh, a lung room utilized a whole lot just simply because most people are doing it right in the garden. So, I mean, they're conditioning the air right in the garden, they're dehumidifying the air right in the garden, uh, they're running their CO2 uh, tank and regulators right inside the garden. Um, uh, I guess I, I might ask the question, what, what, other, what other benefits am I missing? I, um, I don't want to, for lack of a better word, poo-poo the idea. I just uh, when you can do it in one room. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I think so. One of the projects I'm working on, or have been helping out and working with, is, is a, and I've talked about this on the show before, and I've even posted it, I think, a few times on on Facebook. There's a gentleman who I did a bunch of consulting work for. Ran in a place. He's just sold the farm, actually. It's called um, Turtle Island Farms in Colorado, and him and his wife are just moving because they want to get out of Colorado. But um, for a long time, uh, he—I think it was almost five years—he had a successful aquaponic cannabis mushroom business, um, and he's now, you know, saved up a bunch of money, and they're going to take you know a couple months off and travel around and see the world, and then they're going to—they're working on a new project. Um, but what was really cool is that he has his. Uh, uses mushrooms and rooms of mushrooms and mycelium to generate CO2, which he then vents out into his uh, greenhouses where the plants are. And the, you know that the lung room sounds like that might be a good place to exchange in the right, you know, make sure you're getting the right amount of CO2 and have kind of like an in-between room where you could kind of build up or, or burn, you know, vent off some of the extra CO2 sure. based on you know where you were at with the mushroom production that given day. I think, the, like uh, really cool, I think the lung room concept works. It makes sense if you're going to if you're going to regularly ventilate. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. I if I burp off my room or if I purge my room, I want to bring in air that is correctly conditioned 
or correctly supplemented um, and allow it to do its thing while I'm conditioning air in my, my lung room. And then I burp it off again and I bring air in again. Um, we, so can you, can you dehumidify in that, in that circumstance? Uh, absolutely. Um, it, a little, it ends up being a little more of a calculation based upon um, what your seasonal ambient conditions are outside. Um, so what's the worst case dew point air that we're going to bring in wherever you live? Um, so, and then you, so you use that worst case temperature and humidity air uh, and what your CFM rate is being pulled into that room and then you size your dehumidifier based upon that. Now, um, is there, a, what kind of, what's a normal cleaning procedure for something like a dehumidifier? Because something that's pulling in that much air and that much water seems like it might be a vector for, you know, pathogens potentially. I'd say regulate, regularly checking and uh, monitoring the status of your filter is the first step to um, maintaining the cleanliness in the inside of your DHU. Um, we're constantly suggesting to our end users, you know, checking checking these filters monthly and absolutely changing them every every cycle. Um, that was, I would say that's my first step to maintaining the cleanliness. Um, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. You know. Um, you know, ultimately, the rate at which you need to change your filter is all going to be based upon how much airborne particulate is in any room. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good common sense practices like turn your dehumidifier off when you're doing foliar feedings. Um, you don't want to pull that junk through your uh, into the filter or, or through that dehumidifier. Um, the other big maintenance is is to regularly. Uh, check, clean, and or replace your drain hose. Um, so we do get a lot of people that reuse the water coming out of their dehumidifier. It's basically distilled water and some of the things that we do in manufacturing uh, uh, help the quality of that water. Multiple water tests where you have to measure things in parts per billion to, to come up with any heavy metals or anything like that. Um, but That so was just going to be my next question. That was just going to be my next question, is that a lot of the dehumidifiers out there use copper or zinc um, mm -hmm. uh, condensers, and uh, um, that can be a problem for people doing aquaponics, but it sounds like you guys have that solved. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the evaporator coil, which is where the, the, the water condenses, um, traditionally is a, uh, a copper tube with aluminum fins that are pressed upon it. Um, and then the copper tubing at both ends of that, uh, that coil are usually brazed uh, on to the refrigerant system with a silver solder. So you also get silver uh, as a poten another potential heavy metal. Um, one of the things that we do as a manufacturer, uh, we power coat our coils, which is an added cost, um, and it does a couple of things for us. So like the, uh, the condenser or radiator on your car when you pop the hood, uh, that radiator has been powder coated. So it's got a, a black, uh, very strong paint over it. The, um, so going through that powder coating process, it has to go through a solvent bath, which also helps remove any of the uh, residual processing oils. When they press those fins on that copper tubing, they use oil to help it slide on. 
Um, and then it uh, has the paint application and goes through a high temperature oven that uh, changes that powder into a liquid paint and then it cures. Um, so you don't have any water to copper, water to aluminum, or water to sil silver, uh, silver solder uh, contact. Um, the, the other thing it does for you uh, is it puts another layer of protection. Uh, you know, we've all seen a, a copper penny um, corrode, right? Uh, same thing happens to your coin. And uh, having that layer of, uh, of protection there uh, helps the longevity of your equipment. Awesome. Another reason why we're offer, able to offer a five-year warranty on our equipment. That's a really long time for something with a condenser like that. Yeah. Um, I think we're we're going with that conversation. That's great. <laughs> well, no, just about how safe with the, the condenser being safer because it's powder coated. It's it's great to know that people could take that water and you know run it directly back into their sump if they wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we get, especially with some of the water limitations that have been put on customers uh, in certain states, California being one of them, um, you know, when you start looking at the water usage um, in many of these cultivations, I mean, it's mind-blowing uh, that we can reuse just about 98% of everything that we're feeding. Um, really, really has a, a bottom bottom line impact on, on costs when you start looking at your water so the what the plants are only using so then the um, your only loss is that two percent for biomass in the plants or well so yeah you know when when we start talking about you will have loss uh, of water vapor through your structure so i'm not claiming i'm going to recapture uh 98 of every gallon that you put in your room but uh, when we okay. start looking at at how much water we can capture and reuse now, this kind of the so this kind of conversation started with the whole drain line question. Um, so you know, one of the things with our drain line is we always recommend that you put a P trap in the drain line. And if you're not familiar with a P trap, like if you look, open your uh, your bathroom sink and look under under it, you'll see that it makes a, a U-shaped dip so that it holds water in the bottom of that dip. Um, your bathroom that serves the function of not letting sewer gas come back up the um, up through the sink uh, smell wise um, your toilet does the same thing with our dehumidifier uh, it's important that you have a p-trap in your drain line because we're moving so much air through that dehumidifier it's possible to uh, that it could be sucking air up the drain line and not cause the water to drain out and then you'd have a leaking type of issue but what that P-trap does, so when you unbox your Quest dehumidifier, we give you a clear vinyl drain hose. Now, the drawback of that clear vinyl drain hose is that uh, light from the room can penetrate into the hose, and with uh, the standing water in that hose, eventually you will grow something in that hose. Um, the, the value of the clear vinyl drain hose is you can see when you have a problem. Um, and it's your clue to go ahead and replace the drain hose or give it a good cleaning. Um, 
if people don't like that, I oftentimes recommend going to a, a black blackout hose, or I get a lot of people that will just uh, hard plumb their their PVC pipe uh, uh, to the unit. And when they do that, I always recommend that they install a clean out on that drain trap. Um, there's even off the shelf ones that have little end caps that pop off and a brush that comes with it that you should just swipe the brush through a few times and clean out your drain line. Awesome. That's, yeah, I never even thought about that with the P-trap on the on the dehumidifier lines. It's really interesting, and I never even thought of that. It almost works like a reverse venturi in that way, if you get enough draft. Yeah, yeah we, uh, you know, it's probably within our top 10 questions. You know, people will call us and say, and for some reason my dehumidifier is dripping from the corner. Well, you don't have a trap in the drain line. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> Um, so uh, you touched a little bit on how important it is um, to maintain, you know, below fifty-five percent humidity. Do you want to talk about how um, maybe the differences uh, uh, between a home uh, dehumidifier unit and then maybe a commercial unit in terms of how they function? Sure. The um, there's a, a couple of things that that come into play. Um, one is going to be uh, capacity is probably the, the the most relevant thing to a gardener. Um, uh, you know, depending upon the the size of the cultivation, um, you know that's and that's where that that water in water out calculation is is, is super helpful. Um, you know, somebody with a very small basement or closet grow doesn't need a dehumidifier. Um, you know, the size that Quest manufactures, and I don't want to give the wrong impression that we're super huge commercial dehumidifiers. We're definitely a commercial quality, um, you know, on the high end of capacity, you know, we're probably at a, you know, somebody that's watering 10 gallons or more a day uh, in their garden. Um, the, um, some, of the, some of the other differences in a home dehumidifier, um, most of most of what you're going to find in residential stuff is is going to be, again, you know, Chinese built. Um, you know, it's not designed for the rigors of um, being used 24 hours a day in, in, a, in a garden. Um, so characteristically, we always hear of the high failure rate of, the, of those uh, those pieces of equipment, and you know. Uh, tends to be where people enter their career uh, in, in uh, you know in cannabis cultivation, and um, you know they they'll play that game for a while, and their dehumidifier break, and, and um, they'll go replace it, and uh, it'll break again, and, and they might replace it, or they'll have a crop loss type of scenario, um, and then they tend to step up and graduate to uh, to Quest just based upon you know. We're really known as, as, a, as a reliable quality piece of equipment. Um, you know, certainly that warranty attests to that, um, and our energy efficiency. And that's that's really where, as a manufacturer, we hang our hat on energy efficiency. Um, you know, one of the things that we highlight in our brochures is kind of this five-year look at um, what your electrical. Uh, utility expense is going to be just based upon your dehumidifier and uh, sometimes it's shocking how you could 
pay for your quest dehumidifier two, maybe three times over based upon the inefficiency of uh, the alternatives out there. So um, kind of that not so short-sighted um, uh, view of, of uh, what your return on investment is. Absolutely. Jared, would you have anything to add with, uh, you know, against uh, I was just going to say, and, and then when looking at our product line, if you were to make a comparison, you know, between units typically seen in a commercial space versus the home, um, you know, home being where it's space, I'm usually guiding guiding our end users to our, our 10 series. Um, it's just our smaller units. And uh, I've been finding in Colorado that a lot of my guys that are, um, have their facilities at home or in their basement, um, the 10 series has been, has been popular, whereas... Uh, the five series is something you'll definitely see in those a lot larger warehouse spaces, large greenhouses, et cetera. So for everybody out there, we, we call the five series, we have our model, the all-in and vibes, the 105, the 155, the 205, the 225. And those are really our, our most energy efficient dehumidifiers. They use uh, um, uh, some patented heat exchange that uh, that helps us pull more pints per kilowatt hour. Our 10 series is kind of our entry level unit. It's a little smaller form factor, a uh, little lower price point, and not quite as energy efficient, but still more energy efficient than 90% of the dehumidifiers you see on the market. So it's a it's a real nice uh, alternative for for some of the people that are are finally stepping up out of the. Uh, the cheap Chinese stuff and, and um, um, stepping in, into Quest. So it's a little easier price point for, for those people that are rigid. Awesome. Um, uh, I'm trying to look through a list of questions we were talked about here. Uh, so, uh, talked about the different sizes. Um, is there any tips and tricks you guys have aside from the U, uh, the P-trap P uh, for, you know, dehumidifiers in general and running, you know, running or maintaining yours at home? I feel like Coleman really covered it. I mean, the, the use of a P-trap, the blackout too is definitely a great way to mitigate that if you're not able to, you know, do the investment on PVC and hardwire. Um, I'd say if you're reclaiming that water into a, a tank, um, just being cognizant of the fact that maybe having a lid on that, if especially if it's going to be in the room, if you're going to have an open, um, you know, open body of water in your room that uh, that DHA is going to be working to uh, to dehumidify that water evaporating off that surface. Awesome. Um, do you want to talk about, uh, so you guys have a bunch of different units. Do you want to talk about which unit for which size uh, room, you know, what size grow so that people out there, you know, might have an idea on, on you know, what they're looking at as far as uh, maybe price point and, you know, coverage. You know, you guys talked about already about water in and water out, but um, do you have any kind of uh, size? Sure my computer shut down for a moment. Um, no problem. Uh, one of the other things, yes, you know, still. I always try and, highlight is, um, you know, we also offer a lot of different, you know, control options. Um, 
we also pair real nicely with a lot of the other uh, controls that are real popular in the industry as far as, uh, you know, whether it's our friends at SmartBee or um, Iponic or Agritech or Honeywell or, you know, you name the environmental controller, um, you know, even the stuff from, uh, from Titan and, and uh, all the control manufacturers, Wadsworth. Um, uh, we've got the ability to, um, you know, depending on, uh, upon model, uh, our stuff out of the box characteristically has an onboard humidistat, so it's a real easy plug and play scenario. Doesn't require uh, an HVAC contractor to install. Um, our uh, our units uh, have characteristically, um, you know, our, our biggest unit, the two twenty five, uh, always had a low voltage control option, but we've rolled that out to the rest of our five series units. Um, so if somebody uh, you know wants to step up their game and start using a, a little more high functionality environmental controller, we can pair right in with that as well. There's a lot of different options as far as controlling your dehumidifier other than turning a control knob uh, and dialing it in. You're you're also talking uh, well right before the show about you guys are working on a new type of sensor or integrated sensors into your units. <laughs> I, was, I, was there to, I was just about to touch upon um, just the location of our sensor currently and that if you are going to be ducting your unit and, uh, and you know keeping your 105 or 110 you know, outside of the room um, it's just being sure that you have your sensor and controller inside of the actual room um, if not the DHU is going to be going off of the you know the RH settings that are uh, outside of your room yeah you know with uh, with your dehumidification equipment, you, you do need to be cognizant of the layout of, of the other HVAC, uh, you know, ducting or, or location in the room. You know, if you park your dehumidifier right next to the the discharge of your AC, your AC is going to be blowing cold, dry air on your dehumidifier, and it won't turn on. Um, you know, these are some easy things sometimes to overlook for people. Um, our, uh, you know, we briefly touched on some of the controls that we work with. We do also manufacture our own uh, digital control that mounts outside the room, and, and so, so you don't have to go in the room to change a setting. Um, and has a remote sensor in the room that you can then uh, place on the wall or hang down in the canopy, depending upon where you want that sensor location to be at to read the condition of the room and make that decision. Was that? Was that what you were touching on, Steve? Yep, yep. And it's uh, I'm glad you touched on that too because there's a lot of I, uh, not not only uh, air ducting but uh, so and humidity, but sometimes people will put temperature sensors or you know air, I've seen people put their air vent sensors accidentally not run it through with the the ventilation for their for their temperatures and their light sensors they'll you know not put it in the inline with the the housing and you know always double check that and the other thing too is when you're labeling your sensors when you're running them long distances take a piece of um, masking tape and just write what the hell it's going to and what area it should be in so that when you're trying to fish these through the lines and you got a bunch of them together you can you know one of them goes wrong because you know these little sensors temperature sensors eventually after enough years and enough electricity goes through them they're gonna need to be replaced or failed so um, you know you will need to eventually 
maintenance these or you know long term replace them occasionally. So making sure that you have them properly labeled is makes your life infinitely easier, and it's something that takes you know an extra thirty seconds when you're installing them. Uh, I also that's, saw that that's really good advice. I also saw that you guys are featured. I saw a really cool article you guys did. It was in uh, Cannabis Business Times. Do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? It's kind of a, almost like a good guide on uh, uh, a guide and FAQ on um, the different uh, aspects of, of humidity. Yeah, that, that came out uh, uh, this week. Um, I believe uh, you've got a copy of it that you might put up uh, that people yep. can access. Um, yep. Otherwise, it's on. Uh, Cannabis Business Times uh, website under their uh, research drop-down menu. It's just called the Smart Humidity Report. Um, along with them, we, we conducted some um, uh, some surveys, uh, asking some some good questions of, of cultivators, just kind of uh, seeing what kind of conditions people uh, are operating uh, their rooms at. Um, uh, along with uh, some other interview content that you know really kind of looks at the big picture of how humidity uh, affects your garden, um, what attributes uh, you know it can it can bring, and it's uh, it's really more of an educational piece than any kind of it's certainly not sales literature. Um, I'm, I'm super proud of what they were able to put together there for us. So. Definitely check that out. Uh, definitely a good read. Uh, you might need to give yourself a good 15, 20 minutes to buzz through it. Yep, and I have that up on the screen now if you guys want the URL. I'll also include the URL in the description under their uh, information so that you can click it and make it easy to find. That's great. Thank you. Yep. I got to stop sharing here. Yeah, as a company, we've, we've always kind of taken uh, taken a lot of pride on some of the some of the research and, and education uh, tools that that um, we've been able to bring. You know, we've got a nice uh, white paper written on vapor pressure deficit um, that really helps uh, put things a little more in the layman terms and and does do uh, you know enough of a deep dive that uh, you can really get into the. Uh, uh, the math and science of it, um, as well as as powdery mildew. You know, we, um, uh, you know, I started looking around just for you know a, a comprehensive um, um, document on powdery mildew, and there wasn't really anything out there that I was able to find. Just little bits here and there, and so we, you know, put together a nice paper. You know, I thought it was going to be just uh, you know a, a, a two-page read and it ended up coming back, you know, I think it was well over uh, 10 pages worth of, of content understanding powdery mildew, which is, uh, if you like to geek out on stuff like that, we can certainly sh share that as well. Um, you know, uh, what we do in the industry is so education-based. Um, demon fires aren't, aren't sexy. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, they really are an insurance policy, uh, you know, against uh, mold and detritus, and um, you know, it's it's a little harder for people to understand how dehumidification will increase your yield and your quality. Uh, 
whether you know it or not, once you institute dehumidification in your garden, you are applying some of the principles of vapor pressure deficit. So um, just a little side comment for you. Do you want to touch a little bit on that? We've had um, uh, both Spectrum King and Black Dog LED both touched on um, how VP VPD is, you know, it's very important to know to a, not so much adjust for the room temperature, but the plant temperature itself, the leaf surface temperature. Um, and uh, they've both had pretty good explanations. But do you want to tell people, maybe for people that are just joining us now, a little bit about VPD and what it is and why it's important? Maybe and just, you know, you don't have to necessarily do the white paper, but. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I guess the you know the layman's terms of explanation that I always uh, provide people is you know um, uh, based upon the temperature and the humidity of the room that has a direct effect on the stomata in the leaf, and the stomata uh, you know is a two-way street. It has to be able to get off give off water vapor and uh, and oxygen and uptake CO two, um, and when the plant is happy that that two-way street is effectively moving in both directions. Um, as soon as your humidity is too high, uh, that two-way street becomes uh, you know, restricted. Uh, and if it's too dry, uh, the same thing happens and, and you're, you're basically not creating the optimal environment for, for that plant to grow. So again, very rudimentary uh, layman's terms. Um, the other thing I always caution people on is you know, if you look at a VPD chart, uh, there are a lot of bad conditions on that chart for cannabis. Um, you know, might work great sometimes uh, for tomatoes, might work great for peppers, uh, you know, but you're, you're growing a stacked leaf flower. Um, uh, oh, there's a lot of conditions on there that, that aren't good. Um, and then we go down that, uh, that road of, um, can you get away with it for a while? Yeah, maybe. Um, but as soon as we do have uh, problems with, uh, with, with powdery mildew or botrytis, really it comes down to a, we have to hold a condition where, um, where that mold can't grow. And that's where your dehumidification is, is your, is your best friend. If we can hold it, you know, at 50%, um, we're not going to have mold problems. Uh, the next step beyond that is is really dialing in your airflow. Um, you know, you have to have air passes, uh, you know, across that flower in order to be able to give it an opportunity to give up the water vapor. Um, so that's another critical piece that uh, you know we've uh, recently introduced an under canopy air mover that uh, pulls pulls your air down through your canopy and and keeps it low. Uh, on the ground as it discharges it back in the room. Um, you know, kind of a complementary piece that has a lot of really great features on it, um, but really playing into that. Not only do you need dehumidification, but you also need air passes uh, in order for that water to be able to be given up as a, as a water vapor. Um, a lot of times I give people an example they can really grasp onto is, you know, you got, you got a puddle on the floor, you can park a dehumidifier in front of that puddle and that puddle will be there all day while your dehumidifier is running. As soon as I put a fan in front of it, that puddle's gone in an hour. That's, that's the air passes showing you how that uh, um, uh, passive air allows an opportunity for that water to be given up as a vapor. 
Awesome, that was a great explanation. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, or maybe just touch on maybe the ideal or you know in a perfect world or target VPD? So, and uh, you know, uh, so uh, was it about eighty-five to eighty-seven uh, degrees at the leaf surface and around fifty percent humidity, or do you? Is there a particular you know range or you know, anything is perfect for cannabis that you want to recommend to people? So I'm always a little hesitant to give any recommendations. Uh, just how, how do I put this in, in good terms? Um, for me, the the key is is not allowing conditions that will have the potential to propagate mold. Uh, beyond that. Um, you can you can look at the chart. You can see uh, conditions uh, uh, from a temperature standpoint that uh, will coincide with those those lower relative humidities. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be high temperature, high humidity um, to to get that effective opening of the of the stomata. Um, let me put a chart in front of me here. Yeah, I was I was just curious, you know, uh, especially with you saying that, you know, a lot of the ranges are, are not good for cannabis specifically, uh, you know, just kind of what, what would be a good range for people that are out there trying to aim for. So, sorry to throw you a curveball. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. Um, let, me, let me pull up a chart here. Did you have any questions there, uh, BrainGrow? You went in, uh, chimed in a little bit. Not really that I can think of. Steve, I mean, they pretty much covered everything, and uh, you really asked the question uh, and got them talking about vapor pressure deficit. That's what I was really interested in hearing from. So you also touched on air movement. Do you want to maybe extrapolate on that? Is there a certain, you know, CFM per, uh, you know, cubic, cubic foot of uh, growth space or anything, or canopy size or any kind of formula you use for, for just air movement? So, you know, go along with your dehumidifiers and for, you know, proper VPD, because like you were just saying, uh, and that's something I don't think I've heard emphasized before about VPD is that a VPD, you can have the temperature dialed in, you can have the humidity dialed in, but if there's air ain't moving, those plants ain't going to do much of anything in terms of exchange. So do you, do you want to, that's a really awesome point that I haven't heard before. And uh, is there a certain, you know, air movement rate or anything like that, or a formula to determine that you can recommend to people or so I've never seen any any formulas as it comes to as it comes to gardening uh, I guess most of the experience with with airflow that we have is um, I would have to call it anecdotal you know uh, use of our fan in conjunction with your traditional oscillating air movers above canopy um, and that's really what we've we've seen is you know You've got a lot of, uh, uh, once your canopy develops in your room, you've got a lot of really nice oscillating air movement above the canopy, but we end up seeing pockets of stagnant air where PM might pop off under the canopy. Um, you know, the, uh, the air mover that we've designed, uh, it's a top draw fan, so it pulls the air down through the canopy. And with your overhead Quest dehumidifier, it's also pulling that dehumidified air down through that canopy. Um, again, kicking it low on the ground, so it's got a real nice residual benefit of any CO2 that's pulled on the ground. We kick that back up in the room for uh, to make it accessible for the plants again. Um, 
uh, our fan is it's a it's a 925 CFM fan, and we're using that fan uh, approximately every 200 square feet, uh, or as small as a hundred square foot garden. You get you get below that, and it's really too much fan for it. But it's uh, it's got a really uh, a lot of really nice features. You know, at 925 CFM, it's it only pulls 1.9 amps, so it's a real low effective amp draw. Uh, it's got a GF a GFCI on it, which is like what you find in your bathroom if you drop your hair dryer in the bathtub. Um, it protects you from a shock hazard. So the fan being on on the floor of your um, your grow room, uh, if it gets wet uh, and you're standing in the puddle, it's not a shock hazard. But it also lets us daisy chain in, uh, and at 1.9 amps, you can. Can get up to six of them on a 15 amp circuit, so a lot of air movement potential uh, out of a 15 amp circuit. Um, there, there's a really the good. The list of features goes on and on. So there's something we should definitely touch on, and I don't like we've touched more than one or two times on the show. Never put any electrical unit that might have any <laughs> exposed electrical parts on the bottom on the floor of your grow, uh, and that includes <laughs> ballasts. You know anything? <laughs> always put it on a cinder block. You know, it just, or any you know a piece of wood. Literally anything <laughs> just to get it a, you know three inches off the ground because if you, a seal breaks or something. You can live. I've I've seen it happen in pet shops where someone broke a heater mm. and and a, and, a, and a tank or something, and suddenly the half the room has got live electricity across it, and it's like, you know, it's just a safety thing. So always make sure you mount them up. You know, at least three or four feet off the wall, especially in an aquaponic system where you have a little bit more water in the room. Otherwise, you might get a, a pretty uh, electrifying evening. Yeah, it's one of the other nice things about having that GFI on the fan. You know, when you do need an outlet in the room, you're hitting an outlet that's that's protected at that point as well. Um, you know, one of the other things that we've uh, we've recently put into the market is um, a HEPA air filter. Um, it really comes from some of our heritage of, of what we do. Uh, in flood restoration and mold remediation. Um, so it's called the H5, H like HEPA 5, because uh, it's 500 CFM. Um, but it's a, uh, a, a true HEPA filter, um, and it's a, a suitcase-style package. Uh, again, has a GFI on it, has a variable speed fan, has a vacuum switch that tells you when the pre-filter needs to be replaced. So it's packaged with the HEPA and a pre-filter above it. So the pre-filter gets replaced regularly before you're executing or running through uh, the HEPA, which is really the high dollar consumable. Uh, had a lot of people really, really interested in that, uh, you know, on, on the medical side, again, you know, it's it's one more step in mitigation of mold, uh, just because uh, HEPA will capture uh, a mold spore size particle. Um, so you're able to capture that in the filter and then you dispose of the filter. Uh, the other thing that it, it does, you know, the larger and larger cultivations get and the more employees they have, um, you know, you've got a lot of airborne particulate that happens in those rooms because of some of the aggressive air movement. Um, uh, and this is one step that helps remove some of that super fine particulate that would otherwise be impacted in an employee's lungs. Um, 
you know, I briefly mentioned uh, I did a, uh, a stint in, on the construction rental side of our business. Every hospital that gets built, they run HEPA air filtration because they want to make sure that the uh, the air quality during that build uh, is of the highest quality so that you don't have uh, uh, workers or uh, patients or employees uh, getting sick, that type of thing. Yeah, to, to build on what Colin was saying, you know, I've been seeing it at two of my accounts are, well, two end users of ours here in the Denver area, um, also mentioned in that smart humidity report, um, both at Medicine Man and at the Herbal Cure, they're utilizing the H5 in their harvesting rooms where, you know, you have your staff constantly trimming. There's, you know, lots of, of particle going on there and you're constantly hearing about people sneezing and having sinus issues in that room in particular. Um, and, uh, and it's been well received, you know, um, those HEPA filters are designed to take out what 99.97% of, uh, you know, these small particles. So, um, that's where I've been suggesting a, a lot of, uh, those units be, be placed. And that's great. I never even thought about that, but yeah, trim rooms often do get just coated in resin everywhere and you got that fine, you know, broken trikes that float around the room. And uh, never even thought about that, but that's that that's wonderful. That uh, you know, that's definitely something that people should definitely consider doing is putting you know better air movement and dehumidifiers and particulate filters in their you know rooms for their employees doing the trimming. Something I haven't heard of. That's that's really go really cool. Yeah, it's it's really refreshing to uh, to work for a company that that really you know takes a uh, a wide look at. At, you know some of the opportunities in in, in this type of market and um, you know, where we've got crossover knowledge from our engineering staff. We're a very engineering heavy company uh, with a lot of manufacturing experience, and you know that really you know ends up being why we've got the name um, that we do in, in, in the market. It's just uh, it's, uh, always looking at uh, innovation, um, always looking at uh, efficiency, energy efficiency, um, and always with that quality reliability in the back of mind. Um, awesome. Well, did you guys have anything else you guys wanted to touch on? I really appreciate you guys joining us. You guys have been with us about an hour. I don't want to take up too much of your evening, but uh, is there anything other other things you guys wanted to touch on? Uh, and then, um, uh, do you want to tell people how to find you? Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, the only thing that we really didn't uh, bring up regarding our product line was just uh, we do also we, we manufacture portables. We've we've done that for a long time. As far as um, um, you know, units that are easier to move around for uh, greenhouse applications, drying, the supplemental dehumidification. Um, you know, I, I always caution people that you know when you buy a portable dehumidifier like that, you you're really paying for handles and wheels and condensate pump and that rugged durability to go in and out of a truck. So um, if you don't need the portability, we can certainly get you much more performance for your dollar. But for that right customer, for the right need, um, we fill that void as well. And um, I've been doing that for, for a very long time. So um, with that, I'll say thanks, Steve. I appreciate you having us on the show. Uh, it was a great opportunity. 
Thank you. Um, actually, I have one last question. Do you have any um, specific units that are maybe more designed for, um, you know, maybe uh, drying rooms or, or that kind of application? Or do you, you know, suggest someone using, you know, the same kind of, uh, uh, same kind of one they would use in their grow? It would really go, get down to, um, you know, what dry weight they're, they're looking to achieve, you know, um, and that's how we would calculate what unit. I typically, have, I've been seeing a lot of five series, uh, so our kind of our larger unit, and um, the 105 and the 155 I've sized for several curing and drying rooms out here in Colorado. Um, a lot of people gravitating towards that just due to the low energy draw, you know, um, and really just reducing their cost there in the long term. But um, it would really, in order to size for a room, of that nature, you'd, you'd want to know, you know, how much wet weight is going in and uh, what, they're, what they're looking to achieve or what they have historically been achieving before. And what is, the, what is the typical power draw for the, you know, some of your units? I know uh, people out there are trying to make sure they have a nice amp draw. And so a lot of people put in, I, I always suggest putting in at least a sub panel for your grow room because it's the safe thing to do. Add more redundancy and, and just prevent yourself from having a fire, you know, or not even that, losing your equipment. Let's see here. So, sorry to ask you a weird technical question. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Um, so, with, I mean, the range for our product line, um, the lowest being 4.9 amps draw is what the, the 105 is, and then highest um, being in our 10 series, I believe, is the uh, actually, it might be even, yeah, it is the 10 series. So, the uh, 150 dual is, uh, is 11 amp draw. So, oh no, no, sorry, 205, sorry, <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> but um, I guess your question being what amperature they need to have, what circuit they need to have in, in their facility. Well, no, I guess how much, how many amps should people, yeah, how many amps should people dedicate on, a, on an electrical panel specifically for dehumidifying if they're just doing, you know, a, you know, a, say a, a four light or something like that, you know, a standard home grow? Coleman, would you uh, be able it's going to be less than a 15 amp circuit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I just uh, so I do a lot of build outs and stuff like that, and uh, managing the amps. You know, you build out all the equipment, put everything in there, and then figure out how much power you're pulling, and then you know all that stuff. So. Yeah. yeah for a small a small cultivation like that, uh, you're you are probably looking at one of the smallest. 30 pint dehumidifiers on the market that you that you might need, um, which is it's something that uh, Quest really doesn't touch on, on a unit that small. Um, we can still do it, we'll just run a lot less. <laughs> um, so if anybody has any questions on sizing a room, sizing for a drying room, um, you know, we didn't really talk a whole lot about greenhouse applications and things like that. Um, you know, there's uh, our sales staff is always open and welcome to uh, to discuss those things and, and try and provide people the uh, the tools to get their uh, their answers. Awesome, thank you. We'd love to hear from you. And if you guys are trying to find them, uh, definitely be sure to check out their links. Uh, I put a link to uh, uh, their. Um, their company, uh, Quest Hydro, on there, as well as a uh, you know email address for uh, Jared if you want to email him directly. Um, I'll get the uh, 
the one from Coleman, and we'll, we'll get that on there. Uh, and I'll also uh, include the links that we were looking at earlier. So um, if you guys are, have any questions, you don't even have to, to research these guys. Just click the link in the, the thing you're listening to, and it'll be right there for you. Absolutely. Don't hesitate to reach out. Yep, and thank you guys again for taking the time to join us and talk to us about this. And you know, we haven't had anyone that was able to come on on the show and and speak about dehumidifiers. And you guys, um, I, again, very much appreciate you guys taking the time to come on and, and telling us about. You know, you guys are pretty much one of the best, if not the best, company out there uh, doing this for the cannabis industry. So uh, you know, thanks again for all you guys do. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, look forward to the next opportunity. Yep, thank you. Have a great day. Bye now. All right, bye now. How's it going, Brain Grow? Pretty good. Actually just barely got done making some hash while I was uh while while we've been sitting here doing the podcast. <laughs> so looking forward to that. <laughs> Tomorrow or whatever. What uh what you making? Uh, I'm probably just going to leave it as bubble. I did three runs, and uh, probably of the first run, I'll, I'll definitely be leaving the 120 through the 73. I'll be leaving those, well, probably all the way down to the 25, because uh, those are all the ones that tend to have a pretty good melt factor. So... I'm going to leave those ones alone, and then with the uh, rest of it, I'll probably throw it into some edibles or something like that. Maybe smoke it with a joint or something like that. How many uh, How many bags do you run total? Well, I, I have an eight-bag kit that does the 220, the 190, the 160, the 120, the 90, the 73, the 45, and the 25. Awesome. I don't really use. I, I don't really tend to use the forty-five that much. I like to. I don't know. It seems kind of redundant, you know. I, I I skip it sometimes, but I I did run it on the first run, and then on my second and third runs, I usually just run the one ninety. That's funny for that. That's uh, for that pre-filtration, and then the uh, I'll go to the one twenty, then the seventy-three, and the twenty-five on the second and third runs. <laughs> So you don't bother running a 160 at all? 160? No, I don't have a 160 bag. Uh, um, Wait, do I? Do you find much of a difference yeah, at all between the 25 and the 45 in terms of quality? Oh, yeah, actually, I do have a 160 bag, my bad. Um, <laughs> I just came over here and looked real quick. Um, quality definitely seems pretty similar on the on the 25 and the 45. I really, like... Like if I had to, if I had to say best quality, I would definitely say the 120, the 90, and the 73 have the best quality as far as yeah. the taste goes. Especially, they always seem to have the most full the effect. More too. Yeah, definitely. On this one, let's see. I got. It also depends on age, though. I noticed really old stuff will be much heavier in the like, you know, 73 and below. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually did uh I cut this plant down and ran it just right away. It seems it looks like I got a pretty good yield on the 90, 90 you ran and it, 73. You run it wet or did you dry it first? Yeah, I ran it fresh. No, I didn't dry it. I ran it fresh. Oh, damn. 
That's cool. And then I'm probably going to, well, I already put the work bag with the ice. I already put that in the, uh, in a bucket so the ice can melt and I can use that material as, uh, or for some edibles or something like that is probably what I'm going to use it for. I was I was planning on trying to do a little bit dry sifting today because um, I had I had a couple of jars of the CBD therapy so I, I have plenty of that you know and uh, I left out I think it was about four grams you know just a pretty small amount just so I can do a little bit of dry sifting mm-hmm. left it out yesterday so it can dry up and it's still got some moisture left so I'll probably have to give it another 24 hours before I can really dry sift this stuff effectively. What uh, is your dry sifting bubble or or flour? No, I'm dry sifting the. I'm gonna dry sift the flour from the CBD. The strain that I ran in the bubble bags was the Green Alien. Yeah, I, do you do it wet often? Do you find a difference in yield? I've never tried to do bubble with fresh cut. That's interesting. Um. No, I mean, not not really any difference in yield. I kind of calculated it to where as if it was dried. Like, So I, I started with about 30 grams of material this time. So I kind of um, equate that to if it was dry material, I would have been, been somewhere around a quarter ounce. So it would be somewhere around a quarter ounce dry. So it looks like I got around probably a good gram and a half to two grams here so i'm looking forward to smoking that over the next few days man but oh uh, that's right you use like a one gallon setup don't you yeah i do yeah oh, okay. i have i have the five gallon but i just haven't i just haven't happened to use them yet i just i just bought a 20 gallon setup like oh nice so, but yeah it, it's kind of weird i've never done a one gallon to me it's like I've never thought pretty of small. So small. Like yeah. I, I'm not getting like an ounce at least out of that uh, bubble bags, you know, total. Like it's not worth my time. But I guess it, <laughs> it's in Cali where you can get trimmed by the trash bag, so it's not like right. Yeah, I don't exactly have it like <laughs> that over here. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know what's interesting? Uh, there's a company I was talking to that was interested in trying to do some kind of um. I think it was THCV and CBN extract on roots, which I thought was kind of kind of wonky. Oh, actually, on here, roots, so, huh? Yeah. So some people out there never heard of, uh, or maybe aren't familiar with bubble hash. We're talking about the different microns and stuff. Do you want to like maybe tell people what your what your method is with it? You know, as far as how it all works. You know, I, some people just haven't made their own bubble hash home. For those of you guys who don't know, bubble hash is one of the easiest and safest hashes to make at home. Um, it's just ice, water, and a couple filter bags. You, that's <laughs> about it. It's about as safe as it gets. So yeah, uh, <laughs> super <laughs> simple. A little, a little bit of agitation. You know, uh, we take a drill. Uh, we have a a wick that we a whisk that we bought on. You know, at the grocery store, and rip through, and it's it's you know got flutes on it, and it's a harder plastic, but and it just spins it, but it's really soft, you know, smooth on the edges, so it doesn't rip the bags. But and it works really right. good. But I actually have a bubble machine unit coming up, and that'll be nice because it'll automate everything. I just throw it in, zip the bag, turn the machine on, out comes the bubble. Yeah, and I was I was thinking about getting one of those little washing machine units for mine, but I was like, you know, it's it's real simple, and I'm right now I'm only doing one gallon batches, so. <laughs> Yeah. The drill, the drill with the wooden spoon method works pretty good for me. 
But I mean, as far as the method goes, really all you need is the um, the equipment. You can buy, I think, anywhere from like a two to a four to an eight bag kit. Yep. And um, I think they even have twelve. All you're doing, bag. Like they have like some ridiculous because all it is for people that aren't aware is it's just the screen printing sizes they use for t-shirt screen printing. So depending on right. the color and the thickness of the ink and a few others. So and that's the same thing with dry sift. If you guys are are trying to make dry sift and maybe you're in a less than legal country or an area, um, uh, excuse me, a less than legal con country or a less than legal state or something like that. You can just go to the t-shirt store and buy the material and make your own, you know, filters. Or uh, you can also go to the store and buy your own um, uh, uh, t-shirt screens, you know, with the frames on them. And those are great for dry sifting. You stack them up on top of each other. You grind against the top one with your credit card, you know, pass the trim over it, you know, grind it into it. And then, you know, you have you can get a whole set of those for maybe sixty, seventy dollars. You know, for three or four screen, sets of screens with frames. So, you know, they run as twelve, thirteen bucks each, depending on who you're getting it from. Yeah, I actually just barely uploaded the dry sifting video for the screens that I made, and um, it actually came out to for all four screens that I made. I just used a wooden frame. And the total calculated down was less than five dollars for all four screens for me to make, because I, I bought um, I bought the material um, on Amazon, and it came in three yard sections, three yards by sixty three inches, which is way more than what you need to do a dry <laughs> sifting screen. You know, you can you can make several dry sifting screens and sell some to your buddies and make your money back if you want to go that yep. route. You know. But um, but you gotta compete with them with dry sift though. It's not the only guy with dry sift <laughs> in the area, <laughs> right? And but it's 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 really simple. I mean, it's it's a, it's a matter of stretching your own screen across a frame. You know, it's 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 real easy. And the the screen is very durable. You know, so it's it's pretty hard to fuck up unless you're just not pulling it tight enough. That's the only way you're gonna mess it up, really. So I mean, the screens that I made on the video, they're not you know of. 100% awesome quality, you know, but it's better than paying $200 for a, a four screen set or $400 from different websites, you know, because the, the, the fact of the matter is that just because you're using it for a separate purpose, there are retailers that will buy screen, uh, screen printing frames that already have the screens uh, applied to them and uh, boost the cost like five times and yep. sell that sell that to you as a dry sifting screen. Right. And that is all they are doing. So if yep. you're interested in buying, buying a dry sifting screen and not making your own like I did, then at least go for screen printing frames and just get the different micron sizes that you need. And uh, you, can, you can easily look that up. I mean, as far as the mesh sizes, they sell that. Uh, they sell the material in mesh. They don't sell it in micron. So, um, I actually have the sizes written down right here in front of me, so I can kind of go over those real quickly. The 60 mesh tends to be the top screen, which is a uh, 250 micron. So 60 mesh equals 250 micron, and then the 90 mesh is the second screen, and that is a 165 micron, and then uh, below that one is the 110. 
and that goes to 149 micron and then the smallest uh smallest size screen is the 200 mesh with the 75 micron and that's the one that you're going to be using to do all your cleaning and really purifying your dry sift whenever you get down to it I don't really have it down yet. I'm, I'm fixing to do some practicing with this first uh, amount of flour that I have here. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, other than that, yeah, that's that, that pretty much, I think that pretty much covers it for dry sifting. What about for bubble? So what is your method with bubble? You... Well, I, I do, um, I do, I, well, just to start from the very, very bottom, as far as your ice cubes go, you will more than likely want to make your own ice cubes out of distilled water, unless you're doing something like on the scale that you're talking about, a 20-gallon 20, 20 bag, you'd be making ice cubes for days for that. Yep, but, we uh, buy ice, <laughs> buy ice by the 10-pound bag, so... <laughs> Is it from like <laughs> distilled or reverse osmosis water or something like that? Yeah, that's, that's the only thing. Uh, a lot of a lot of these ice makers around here, they'll just use tap water to make their ice or whatever. And uh, the tap water here has a lot of bad stuff in it, so you'll never want to use tap water to make your ice. Generally speaking, uh, you'll never really want to use tap water to make your ice. And then again, I use distilled water for my water that I use while I stir it around. And I simply attach a wooden spoon to a drill. And for my first run, I usually do it about eight minutes. And I do it a lot more gently than I do my second and third runs. Because your first run, you're really going for your top quality. And then the second and third runs, you're really just trying to get whatever's left there. The, the second and third runs, I usually do them about 10 to 12 minutes or something like that. Sometimes by the time I get down to the last run, my ice is pretty melted. So it's, sometimes I don't really do a third one. But uh, I guess that's, I do. that's pretty much all there is to it. That's interesting. So when I do it, we always put in you know ice. And by the time we just run it for about 10 minutes or so, and then after those 10 minutes, I've beaten that shit out of that plant material so badly I've damn near melted most of the ice, so. Right. Yeah, this time around, when I when I got down to the third one, I had very little ice, so I kind of, I didn't put too much effort into that. I was realizing that most of my ice was gone, so I was like, well, I'm not going to be doing a very effective third run here, so uh, just kind of, I think I ended it probably around like seven minutes or so. So uh, Chicken Hole says, what about dry ice? Uh, so dry ice is interesting. You can take bubble bags, throw your plant material in it, throw your dry ice in it for three to five minutes, and then shake it on top above a, a plate, and you'll get a ton of keef that'll come right off of that. The problem is you'll also get a ton of frozen plant material that happened to shatter and flake off because it got so cold, uh, and you'll end up with a dirtier... Um, material. Now you will get an increase in yield, but that increase in yield is actually just frozen flaked plant material. Not like, you know, and the longer, you know, you do two, three, two, three good shakes, and that's going to be your best, you know, maybe even five shakes. That's going to be your good stuff. Then, you know, let it chill for another 20, 30 seconds, give it a few more shakes. And that's like your next lower grade stuff. Um, but it, it, it just doesn't work out quite as good. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with that. Whenever you're doing the dry, the dry ice, um, 
sifting method, you're definitely getting a lot more contaminant and a lot less trichomes yep. in that material. So you'll, you'll uh, I don't know, people still do it, you know, but uh, it's, it's really just depends on what, what you feel like your style is, you know. Yeah, it's just kind of, I don't know, I don't do it because it comes out crappier. I can get, for this, like... Yeah, I've never done it. It's a little faster. I mean, maybe if I had an ungodly amount of trim, like, even more, so much to where I thought <laughs> bubble was stupid, which, that'd be a lot of trim. Um, <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, there's just no, especially for an inferior product, and, or, you know, for example, like, what I'm doing with the bubble, I'll take the bubble and press it into rosin, I don't want to press that extra the stuff that's going to make the, the rosin taste like butt. And then not only that, when it burns in people's dabbers, it's going to leave behind like an ash and a, and a film that normally, you know, really good extract shouldn't leave much at all behind. So, um, you know, it's just going to make it for, you know, an inferior product. It'll be harsher. It'll actually combust a little bit rather than, um, you know, melting the way it should. Right. Oh, so Derek uh, or Derek asks um, Stoner thought, what if you were used to use really cold air and agitate your mix with bubble bags uh, versus mix it by hand or machine? Um, I've never tried that. I don't see why that wouldn't work, but it just would be mechanically maybe not as viable. There is a cold extract method, which I think I've touched on before on the show, where you take your plant material, throw it in a big glass salad bowl or other salad bowl. Glass works best. Um, then throw your plant material in, wait, you know, three, two or three minutes for that to freeze. Uh, throw your dry ice on top with the dry ice on top, you know, good layer of dry ice, pelletized dry ice. Then take your um, highest proof alcohol and get your hands on. 97% uh, gin, Everclear, Moonshine, whatever you can get your grubby little hands on. Take that, pour it into the uh, bowl with the, with the dry ice and the plant material that's now fro you know, mostly frozen. And what will happen is that dry ice is super cold, but the alcohol won't freeze because it's super high alcohol content. So you get this rolling, heavy boil. It's like a cold boil. Uh, and it does a super, super ultra-cold extract into the alcohol. And that's how you can get... Uh, so what, what that does is it, it dissolves all the, the terpenes and cannabinoids and gland heads off into the alcohol. Then what you can do is once that bubble, once that roll almost is coming to a near almost ending, um, you want to immediately, you know, almost all the uh, dry ice is boiled off. You don't, you don't want to wait until it's completely happened because it'll affect the flavor of it. But uh, if you wait, you know, get it to where it's almost done, pour it, quickly strain it, put it into a crock pot and evaporate it off until you're left with a tincture that you want. Um, the benefit to this is you can make a, uh, a cannabis tincture that has little to no cannabis flavor. Um, that's doing it super cold will pull next to none of the cannabis um, flavoring out of it. So if you want to give it to someone that hates cannabis, or maybe a family member that isn't used to cannabis and you're giving them for cancer or something, it, it's a far easier and far more palatable. Uh, I know my mother hates the taste of cannabis. Uh, so, you know... <laughs> That's yeah. That's, that's pretty one of the much about that I'm in right now. Is uh, I'm trying to make some medicine for my dad, you know, and uh, he hasn't been able to really eat the first batch of brownies I made because I didn't really have taste in mind, you know. Whenever you take medicine, <laughs> how often is it supposed to taste good, you know? Take your medicine. Well, not only that, how many like... other medicines come in brownie form? <laughs> come on, man. Exactly. <laughs> You know what you do yeah. is you put the brownie underneath some ice cream, put some more hot fudge on top, 
No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Man, that sounds delicious. I'm going to go pop a brownie for my pops, man. Right? Have me but, uh, a brownie Sunday. If he, uh, if he really can't handle the flavor, though, doing that cold extract is one of the best ways to have little to no cannabis flavor, especially, you know, children or elderly, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, alternatively, coconut oil works yep. good to just mask the flavor whenever you're eating any kind of edibles. You know, I've made several, I've made edibles several times, just a bunch of different things where you can't even really taste the weed in it. And all you, well, I mean, you can't taste the coconut oil either, obviously, but uh, it tends to mask the flavor of the weed. You know, it, it just hides it. It just hides it. You just can't even taste it. <laughs> that reminds me, I just forgot I have a, like a pound of butter. Shit. <laughs> what I've been doing is taking the so you know when you make rosin you have the pressed bags the pucks that are left over with the material oh yeah I've the little chips that, yeah the chips I've been taking them and cooking them down into uh, coconut oil or, or um, sunflower oil or butter and making a whole you know extra product out of them just for you know myself most oh, I'm yeah. giving most of it to a friend of mine that's about, you know, going through surgery at the moment but heck yeah man so, already, um, is it, uh, trying to think of what else I got going on. What else do you have going on? Um, well, actually, in my garden, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next plants that I'm sticking in flowering because uh, I started uh, sexing a couple of plants that are uh, early Durban. It's a uh, Durban poison crossed with original skunk number one. And I'm thinking that the phenotype that I have over here is going to be a female because um, I think we're on day two right now of the sexing. And it looks like it's already starting to throw some pistols out. So I'm pretty happy about that. And then I have another clone that I can uh, reset as the new mother for that strain. So I'll be able to put the original plant from that one into flowering around next week probably. And then I also have a blueberry, which is another strain that I haven't grown yet. So uh, I'm looking forward to growing both of those. And uh, let's see, I have a green alien that's pretty much ready as well. So um, I'll have a few plants in the flowering room here pretty soon. Because uh, I just had barely cut down that green alien today to make hash out of it. And I had cut down the tops of it last week. So I got a little bit of that in the drying chamber. Um... Pretty much other than that, you know, the only thing that I have coming up for my YouTube channel is these uh, hash making videos, this uh, dry sifting and the uh, bubble hash making. I'm sitting here looking at the hash that I made right now and I can't wait for it to dry. But uh, other than that, oh, also, as far as my uh, mushrooms go, I ordered some vermiculite because the uh, cocoa core didn't seem to work out for me. Looks like the mycelium started to grow, went to about 10 to 15 percent growth and stopped and got contaminated. So uh, I've tried doing it several times. The only thing I've never really tried doing is what's recommended, which is the vermiculite with the brown rice flour. So um, that's coming in. I think that's actually going to be here tomorrow. So I'll be doing another video of that as well so I can get my mushrooms going. The other uh, 
thing I would suggest for that is in place of using vermiculite, use a bird seed, a millet heavy bird seed. Get, uh, just make sure that you don't have any sunflowers. I've, I've grown my own uh, oyster, like tons and tons of oysters. Um, I also helped grow on, uh, I was talking about that earlier, the Turtle Island Farms. Uh, he, he had about 18 right. different species of, of mushrooms there, and it was really cool to learn. Yeah, so that's awesome. He even did, uh, experimented with, um, uh, morels and um, truffles so where we were going the plants the companion plants so that was really cool yeah I hopefully heard. once once I can get my technique down I definitely want to uh, evolve my game into some different strains of mushrooms because right now all I have is one strain of the uh, psilocybin cubensis and I, I want to try some edible mushrooms uh, maybe try and sell some to these restaurants around here there's there's one restaurant in particular that um, we haven't really had anything on this level in this town in a while, and it's it's a pretty nice restaurant with uh, with some gourmet items on the menu, you know. So uh, hopefully uh, they'd be interested in adding some mushrooms along to their menu. So I need to get my mushroom game down, basically. So who else we got in live chat uh, tonight? Oh, Phonics left this call. Holy shit. I guess I'm live by myself, guys. Um, I actually can't see anything that's going on in chat right now. So uh, definitely a huge thanks to you guys for whoever is watching live. <laughs> I guess we'll wait about uh, 15 seconds for Steve to come back. Well, guys, uh, I'm pretty sure y'all don't want to sit here and look at a silent screen. So, uh, oh, there he is. <laughs> Having a little bit of issues there, Steve? Yo, can you hear me? Yo, Steve. Yo. Can you, you good? Hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, good. Sorry about that. I had a, my computer crashed. Let me fix my audio. I'm sorry, guys. One second. So, who we got uh, watching live tonight, Steve? Uh, hold on. I gotta get back. Sorry about that. My laptop crashed. Um, and I was running the podcast from my laptop, and I had to quickly switch to my desktop, like before uh. the the feed, before <laughs> the whole podcast link crashed. So right. that's why that got dodgy. So apologize, guys. <laughs> um, where's the rest of our uh, panel at tonight, man? I don't know. So I know, uh, um, Fishgunner guy ended up. Uh, him and his wife had a uh, family stuff this week, and then um. Uh, Marty, I'm not sure. I sent him the link. I know he had uh, uh, wasn't able to join us last night. He had kid aggro until real late in the show, and um, uh, you know he's dealing with a new baby and all, so he's just got his hands full a little bit right now. And uh, um, right. I'm not sure about Roger. 
I think Roger said he was going to be on the show last night, and just I, maybe he's sick. Yeah, I know he was feeling a little, uh, I don't know, kind of a little under the weather, just, just uh, some stuff he had going on in his personal life. So uh, hopefully that's not anything that influenced him to not be on the show tonight. I uh, no. hope everything's doing doing good with him. That's one thing I love to see is that, you know, this show, so many times I've had a really bad day or maybe not so many times, but a couple of times I've had a really bad day or maybe some of the other panel members had a really bad day and we come on the show and we're all laughing and bullshit and having a good time. We're all learning together. You know, it's it's a really, really fun to get together and do this, you know, twice a week now. Um, I plan on eventually doing a third show. We'll figure out what that ends up being. Um, I'm still trying to, to work on a veteran show, which is kind of my goal, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I actually, it is a in touch with Sean Major a couple uh, yesterday. Uh, the guy that's the head of Weed for Warriors, we have a project uh, might end up helping him out with, uh, or at least we're stuff. But that'll be that'll be really cool to talk about later on. We'll try to get him back on the show. He was a really cool guest when we had him. So actually, that's did we cool. get him on? I know that I had talked to him. Maybe we didn't get him on the show. I, I forget. It's been we've done so many episodes now. They all start to blur together. Right. <laughs> This is what episode forty-eight. Although one of these days we need to do the lost, which um, the lost episode. <laughs> no, no, no. We have one. Marty and I got so stoned the one day we we actually uh, jumped a number. So um, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So one of these days we're gonna get like a really cool guest and uh, and we'll do like a a lost episode and and. Oh yeah, that'd be dope. <laughs> And uh, that's one other thing. If anyone has any other um, suggestions for um, people to get us on the show or you know have on the show, I, I know I got reaching out to a couple people over at the Growers Roundtable to try and come on the show, and um, I've also reached out to um, Mad Farmer and a couple of other people. So we're hoping to get. Uh, I also would love to get a ceramic metal halide representative on the show. We've had a bunch of LEDs. In my opinion, LEDs are the way to go. Um, Fish Ganja guy is waiting on his very last sample, and then he'll. Uh, He'll give the reveal on the SK versus Black Dogs, but um, I will say that one of the lights came up three, uh, like three times the total plant, the flower yield than the other light. Uh, wow! <laughs> uh, and then that same light came up about two percent higher uh, on some of the stuff. But I won't, uh, you know, not going to reveal what it was. Um, might have even gotten myself in trouble for saying that much, but. Um, <laughs> We will let him do the big reveal here soon, but you uh, one of the lights crushed the ever-loving shit out of the other light. So, well, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, hearing about those results because, uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone else is too. You know, everyone who watches the show regularly, and yeah. especially if you follow his Instagram account, he he has posted all the pictures of everything that he's harvested, and that bud simply looks amazing. Uh, so we had a question from chat here. What? Right, trying to flip between windows after recovering from the laptop crash. Um, <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> Derek Jones asks, uh, what's your all's favorite method for growing cannabis and aquaponics, media, DWC, or wicking beds? Um, actually, if you go back to our very first episode we did, uh, episode one, we touched all about that in great depth. Um, 
<clears throat> I've grown cannabis in media beds, DWCs, wicking beds, and in our preferred method is called dual root zone planting, which you can go to my YouTube, uh, this same YouTube channel, uh, in the how-to section. I have a how-to on how to set your plants up. And I found that method allows you the best way to you know, add additional supplementation without affecting the fish health, uh, the overall system health, and allowing you to adjust plants on a per-plant basis rather than being stuck uh, like you would in a completely uh, connected system like a, a DWC or a media or even to a lesser extent a wicking bed. Now, with wicking beds, we've had pretty good luck with, but the problem we've always had is I've had a handful of strains every single run, I would say between 15 and 50%, depending on the strains and the time of year and and silica levels uh, tend to end up with like a root rot or a pythium or some kind of like weird wilt right before harvest. You know, they'll look really good and then like a week or two out, the plant just goes to shit and we have to harvest it early and hash it. So um, that's been the struggle I've had with, with wicking beds. Uh, as far as DWC goes, um, we I have where they did do DWC dual root zone setups, but that mostly had to do with the fact that they were trying to adapt their existing equipment to fit this, you know, fit the, fit their needs were more so than designing it from the ground up. You know, there's downsides to doing DOC, uh, DWC because DWC is going to dramatically increase your water volume. And what happens when you dramatically increase your water volume? You increase your overall uh, overhead um, and up, upkeep costs because you're do having to dose for tremendously larger water volumes. Uh, so we try to stay away from, we try to stay more towards media beds or flood and drains, um, you know, uh, or, you know, that kind of stuff to where I can run, you know, as small a water volume as possible uh, while still accounting for fish and plant health and, you know, enough to flood the area that I want to flood at a given time. Uh, without having to necessarily, um, you know, dose so much nutrients. It's one of the methods that I help, uh, especially working in, in the Caribbean, really help me fine-tune and, and just get rid of as much water as possible in the system, um, at least any excess water that we don't need so that we can reduce our iron dosing, our silica dosing, um, when we need to adjust pH, all of those things. On You know, if I have a smaller water volume, I can get, you know, my overhead's going to be a lot less than the DWC guy down the street, even though we're going same plants the you know and the exact same canopy space i'm going to crush him on on overhead cost because i'm having to dose much much less to do the um my i'm not dosing for this larger water volume especially initially but also through maintenance you know you're going to lose a percentage of your nutrients through microbial interactions uh precipitation uh electrolysis uh, all kinds of other uh, issues that cause, uh, you know, will affect nutrient levels in the water, aside from the plants, you know. So, and that's that's why yeah, DWC as far doesn't as... work. It also uh, DWC. If you want to see documented DWC grow, go over to uh, Friendly Aquaponics. Uh, they had no idea what they were doing originally when they started off as a. a they're trying to do uh, under the guise of a church, which, as we all know, does not work with the DEA. Um, it does now. You can actually go to the Church of, of Cannabis in Denver. But um, back in the day, they tried to do this in the 90s or early 2000s, way before you were, you know, this kind of stuff would fly. So um, they actually had it, and they said cannabis doesn't grow. Although, again, which a lot of the part that people don't know is bullshit. Part of their DEA. Uh, agreement, their plea bargain was to act as sock puppets for the DEA and bullshit people into telling them that it doesn't work for uh, for cannabis.
You still having some issues there, Steve? Oh, shit. I hit mute. Um, <laughs> where did I leave off? Uh, they're saying, you were saying that the DEA was using them as sock puppets and telling, uh, telling the public that uh, cannabis doesn't grow well with aquaponics. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they were telling them that, but that was literally written into their plea bargain was to discourage people from using aqu uh, aquaponics for cannabis. So, and then he, the, the, the guy, uh, fucking, I'll call him out right now because the guy called me out. Uh, Tim Mann stood up at the Aquaponic Association conference and basically gave this sorry excuse of a DEA regurgitated speech back telling everyone how they shouldn't be involved with cannabis in front of the entire industry made himself look a, like a fucking jester, you know? <laughs> and they're, they're the company and... Uh, uh, Marty and I cite them constantly, although we try to leave their name out, putting out just garbage information saying EM1 is going to harm your system and kill your plants and, and adding additional nutrients is going to kill your fish and, and just all this fucking garbage. The best one is, is, is like earthworms cause salmonella and E. coli. Actually, they have a microbe in their digestive <laughs> tract that breaks it down. They're used for mitigate, soil mitigation. They're the exact opposite of what they said. So they're just the, the single biggest proponents of just bullshit aquaponics information out there. Um, not to mention they, they tell people you can you run aquaponics without filtration units on a commercial scale. You never need to dose any nutrients, uh, no iron, no, no, no. It, it's stuff that anyone who's done any amount of research can tell is just complete crap. Yeah, this, who was that you said? Uh, oh, it's Friendly's Aquaponics. If you want a good laugh, oh. sign up for their uh, sign up for their um, newsletter. <laughs> I've laughed harder at that than I have just about anything else this past year. Marty and I regularly talk about it privately. Pretty good. I don't normally rant about people, but since that guy had the gall to call me out by name at a, at a conference, I feel the need to return the favor. Wow. But yeah, definitely. But we, Marty and I get these questions from their newsletter all the time saying, oh, well, it says you shouldn't use probiotics or EM1 or don't dose with microbial inoculants. Or, you know, you, you happen to have one idiot that did not follow the directions, did it horribly wrong, happened to be a customer of yours. And since they were part of your, you know, consulting program that you were charging them for, they, you gave them bad information and they killed their fish. That's the problem, you know, so. Yep. Sorry to go on a random rest rant on a particular person, but anyways. Yeah. I love me some EM1, just to set the record straight, people. <laughs> yeah, that's, for those of you who are confused about EM1, we often refer to it as labs on the show. Uh, yeah, the lactobacillus yeah. serum. EM1 is just kind of a shelf-stabilized version. But, um, but yeah, so, and then, uh, I... Uh, is there anything else going on with you? And then I'll I'll touch a little bit on this. Uh, what we want to talk about? <laughs> I think I think that's pretty much it. You know, I'm I'm just getting ready for a new start in the flowering chamber. You know, just cleaning stuff up and getting ready for that. Getting ready to post some more video on that. So, uh, like I said, I'm I'm just trying to get a little bit more active on my YouTube channel. You know. Yep. But uh, you can go ahead, man. Um. Alrighty. Um. So. Uh, First off, I wanted to say uh, we're going to do after we've had a lot of piss. People may have seen me on YouTube and stuff or on Facebook and stuff like that with some of the, the aquaponic groups. Um, me and a couple of other people love to get in debates and especially about certain topics that we feel strongly about. And I decided maybe it'd be fun to like stop talking so much and to start a grow off. So 
Uh, I'm gonna get together with uh, the guys over at uh, Aquaponics Anonymous, and we're gonna I'm gonna make a, a form sheet where I can get everyone's information, and then we're gonna get a I'm gonna go out and buy a bunch of seeds, and we're gonna throw down. We're gonna have a start date and end date, the same way you do cannabis grow offs, and we're gonna see whose different methods are best and who's suck. Oh shit! I'm tired of talking. We're gonna throw down. Like and we're gonna do that, you know, we'll maybe do three different crops, maybe like veg like lettuce, tomatoes, and peppers or something. We'll, we'll come up with something and you know, we'll give everyone three seeds and they grow those three seeds and we'll do total yield and and blah blah blah. Uh in a set period of time. <laughs> but it'd be fun, you know. All these people love to talk so much or, or, or love to get all heated and everything. Let's stop talking. Let's grow something and let's all start on the same page at the same time and throw down and I'll post, you know, have a weekly update or something and you know, let's let, let's have some fun with this. Then we can we can debate even more. But I think it'd be rather than us, you know, arguing and and everything else online. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, that would definitely be fun. Something, yeah, and something that the community can participate in as well. Exactly, exactly. And we'll see how big it gets. Maybe I'll try to get a seed sponsor. I mean, if this gets totally ridiculously huge, for that. Yeah, that would definitely be fun. <laughs> but I thought it'd be something that I could throw up a little bit of money towards, and it wouldn't cost me much, and it'd be a lot of fun to, you know, have a different way of arguing. <laughs> oh yeah, so, it'd be really cool. Um, so what have I been up to? Uh, let's see, been making rosin um, uh, on the side, and uh, just for myself. Um, a friend of mine had a some extra trimmers he was getting rid of and just had nothing to do with and sitting around. So uh, I did that. And then I've been working on uh, a bunch of business stuff that is like very, very amazing and awesome. And I wish so badly I could tell you guys about this second, but <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff that I've been working towards for a very long time is all falling together with an amazing group of people. And that's probably all I can legally tell you right now. Um, yeah, I think that's it. But uh, you guys will know very soon. Uh, I think in the next two weeks we'll be allowed to talk about it. Hopefully, if not, it'll be in the next the next thirty to sixty days for sure. Hopefully, in the next two weeks I'll be able to do a formal announcement on what I've been cooking up the last I don't know three or four weeks. Well, much longer than that, but intensively the last three or four weeks. So, just working on um, trying to find a house and a car up here. You know, just sold a bunch of stuff down where I was living. Uh, I sold off my car in Colorado. Um, sold off some other stuff, so I'm just kind of consolidating all my life and getting moving more towards the Bay Area uh, to get established with some multiple projects that I'm working on over here. So, I guess that's all I can say at the moment. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, uh, Ken from Ouroboros has the uh, schedule out for both my classes, the cannabis and medicinal herb classes coming up, as well as he has his business class, which is really awesome. If you guys are out there and you're looking to start aquaponic business or even a cannabis business, he'll sit there. Oh, the cannabis business gets slightly more complicated because, yeah, anyways, at the very least, we can sit you down uh, with the cannabis business, but in, in his case, uh, uh, for the aquaponic businesses, he has an additional day if you're interested along with his uh, big commercial class where he'll sit down with you, he'll sit and make a website, an entry level website with you on Squarespace to get, you know, hold your hand, set up a business plan so you can solicit investors and basically do all the stuff that, you know, you come in, you take that class, you take the extra little class and you got everything you need in order to get started and solicit investment and get your farm off the ground. Um, you know, there's nobody else out there that's doing that. Uh, 
from start to finish, that level of, of making sure that you know exactly what needs to happen. And not only that, you have it was almost six years of data now um, that Ken is uh, to, that can share with you to prove that he's not full of shit. You know, many people out there that can go back years and years and years that have been around. Ken, you know, uh, Aura Boros has been on uh, PBS and they've been featured. You know, on, on all up and down the West Coast. Uh, you know, they're one of the most well-known and largest and well-respected, as well as one of the most profitable aquaponics um, uh, facilities out there uh, in in North America. So. Um, you know, definitely give them a, a, a check out and uh, as well as we'll be doing an online class here paired up with them uh, pretty soon uh, we're working on getting the infrastructure set up over there so we can start doing some of the classes live online so that people at home can take the classes if they aren't able to fly all the way to California they can still take the class ask questions just the way they would if they were sitting in the class but just maybe not without the physical interaction part but we'll cover that with camera work and everything that'll be awesome yeah, so we're working that, on that. Uh, that business okay. class definitely sounds like something that can benefit people. Oh, yeah. And again, I haven't heard of anyone else out there that'll sit down with you, help you make your website, help you get your business plan on it, help you explain how to solicit investors, uh, explain how to, you know, find your, your different, um, you know, people to reach out to. And not only that, you can see, you know, he'll give you examples of how it's working in his business. He's distributing throughout San Francisco now uh, to, you know, three-star Michelin restaurants and things like that. You know, some of the highest end, most expensive places in the entire city now are buying from him on a daily basis. Um, you know, you're not going to get anyone better than that in the aquaponic business, business if you're trying to, you know, really get your own commercial operation off the ground. Um, you know, there really isn't a, another option that's as good as that. That's awesome. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else going on that I'm allowed to talk about. Oh, I know what I can talk about that I won't get in trouble for. So in Jamaica, um, been working with the Rastafarian Church down there, uh, Naya Bingi. As it does a lot of work for us down there, uh, his name is Ross Aggie. Um, we just got them a bunch of funding for them to start uh, doing uh, cultivated moringa production, which they use for for food as well as the sweeteners. But also, uh, uh, that's going to help them get um, you know more uh, a lot of the benefit or a lot of the profits. The bulk of the profits in that company are going to go back to the Rastafarian Church and fund their educational efforts for both aquaponics and cultivate agricultural cultivation. So I was really happy to find one of the uh, people that able to uh, uh, you know help out one of the other people I'm working with on something that wasn't even cannabis related it just they happened to wanted to import moringa to the United States and now these guys you know this really amazing group of people that were able to help me out a lot with what while I was working down there um, Rasa Yavi and Rasa Aggie um, it was great to be able to, to do something that would help them out that wasn't cannabis related you know you work so hard talk so much about that but you still need food and everything else you know and medicine so you know I know we talk about cannabis a lot, but I also work with you know them down there. I work with the LA School District through a nonprofit in LA, and and all, you know just because we we do cannabis doesn't mean we can't help people in other ways. Cannabis was put on earth to help people. It was put on earth to make the world a better oh, yeah. place, and it was put on earth to heal. And any oh, yeah. project that you're working on with cannabis, always try to set aside five or ten percent of the profits for a nonprofit or for because that's what this plant was made to do. This plant is a means to provide for health, money. Uh, benefits, um, you know, all these different things that we need in order to um, uh, help people in this world, and that's what this plant was made for. Uh, and if I can't think of a single argument against that, you know, that's why I'm so absolutely and yeah, and um, uh, unfortunately, there's not more people that there's not enough people that feel that way, you know. 
people just uh, take take the government's word for it and, and whatever they say at face value, you know, and, and that's it. They don't look they don't look deeper into the into the facts, and that's something I wish more people would do. But um, you know, you can only you can only try and you can you can lead a like they say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yep. Absolutely. Do we have any more uh, questions from chat? Um, I'm trying to see. There was kind of a random question about someone if they're still in aquaponics, but that's not really relevant. Uh, I don't know. I think that's it for now. Does anyone else have any questions in chat? I'm going to be um, hopefully getting... I keep trying to set aside time to work on my my nutrient videos. I have a couple of them done now. I'm going to queue them up here um, and, and get them on. And uh, <laughs> um, What's up? Uh, no, I was reading chat. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but uh, I'll have those nutrient videos up. I have a couple of other cool, like, how-to videos. Um, uh, I got a germination video that I got to finish getting up, uh, finish editing to put up, and uh, a couple of other stuff um, that'll be coming up. Aside from that, I just uh, slamming away at this thing I can't tell you guys about yet, and I'll have a bunch of information ridiculously shortly as soon as I'm allowed. <laughs> so, but let's just say there's like some of the biggest names in uh, in aquaponics are now the aquaponics the dream team. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the Olympic aquaponics team. Yes, yeah. If you could make a, ba a basketball <laughs> version of like, dream like an aquaponic version of a basketball dream team, or like you know an Olympic level hockey team, that's pretty much what we got going. Without Olympic aquaponics, doing anything else. Yeah, that's so. actually going to be the name of it, guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think that'll be about it. I think we'll wrap up the show a little bit early. We don't have... It's so quiet without a... What was it? Oh, Charlotte's Web. our other panel members. Oh. oh, yeah. I ranted about Charlotte's Web recently. Are you talking about... You said one of my favorite rants was uh, of Steve was on CW. Are you talking about Charlotte's Web or CW Pharma? Because I've ranted about both. <laughs> CW Pharma is based over in um, the UK, and then Charlotte's Web is that... Um, you know, basically scam medication that uh, the Stanley Brothers put out. That Stanley you know, like, Brothers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I someone asked me. I got a private message the other day, and I was floored. Um, I, they and I, I think the last rant I did was actually on Monday. I think that's what he's referring to. Correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, Charlotte's since we're on a different show, Charlotte's Web. One of their packages was nine nine milligrams of of activated CBD. Nine milligrams. That's offensively low. Like, there's that's psychotically low. There's, there's. That's a I'm baby's taking, dose. Yeah, when I hurt my back, I was taking two thousand milligrams <laughs> per day uh, per, of no, the per CBD. Yeah, a uh, 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 CBD THC, and I was taking three of those a day. So I was taking six thousand milligrams per day for severe pain. Uh, for mild pain, you know, people are still taking two hundred and fifty to a thousand milligrams a day. So right. selling people something at like sixty dollars. Uh, or, or, or $90 or $100 a package or whatever the fuck they charge, $45 is the lowest I can see them charging. For 9 milligrams, that's, that's snake oil. That's not helping anyone. Right, that's, 
that's pure robbery and that's not what the cannabis industry is about at all or should be about i'll say yeah and and, and not only that they have their own private army of lawyers that they're going to sick after people and their lobby their little lobbyist group uh that they they use to to, to pitch just their only strain just their strain not 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 medical cannabis they're anti-medical cannabis they're just just for people that are out there aren't aware of that charlotte's web is anti-medical cannabis and they state that on their website Okay, they're they're for only CBD production and only using Charlotte's Web because they want a monopoly. They want to only allow their state. In fact, that was the very first bill. The first two bills that were proposed in Florida were Charlotte's Web only bills. Uh, many other states have proposed Charlotte's Web only bills. Why? Because Charlotte's Web is their own private law con congressional lobbying firm. Yeah, they're, they're trying to help themselves. They're the fucking Monsanto or or or. Uh, uh, dow chemical of, of the cannabis world they're fucking scumbags they don't even help people like their medication is garbage there's strains now like canatonic and some of the other ones out there now are, are pushing 30 percent cbd uh, charlotte's web barely touches 14 most of the time okay i i i have a strain called shirley temple that's made from two of the three parent strains of charlotte's web and it's way better higher thc higher cbd less mold problems uh, easier production, larger bud size, easier to harvest. Why the fuck would I care mess with their garbage? But they're ripping people off and they're giving people false hope, which is even worse. Exactly. So, sorry. Um, I did a lot of ranting today. <laughs> fuck it. Our panel members aren't here. We got to fill the time with something yeah, else. Someone's got to be as loud as Roger and, and Marty, you know? Right gotta fill in for them and ganja guy he's not here tonight so anyways yeah. i think we'll wrap up the show a little bit early tonight and uh ouroborosfarms.com if you're interested in them um you can check out my website at potent ponics um and uh, uh yeah uh, tell what you tell people how to find you yeah definitely uh check me out on instagram at brain underscore grow and uh, my YouTube channel name is the same, Brain Grow. And then um, I'm also uh, pretty active over at uh, ilovegrowingmarijuana.com, which is where one of our other panel members, Roger, is usually uh, he's usually the one plugging I Love Growing Marijuana because he is a uh, admin over there. But um, I'm pretty active over there. So if you want to have a conversation, definitely hit me up on ilovegrowingmarijuana.com or, uh, you know, check out my uh, YouTube content. Um, check out my Instagram contents and uh, just, just comment, you know. We can have a chat. Uh, and uh, if you guys want to check it out, uh, definitely go check out Marty's channel too. Uh, I'll plug him since he wasn't able to join us. Uh, AP Meds, he also has his Patreon. I know it definitely helps him pay for his munchkins and for his grow, so you know, be sure to support him as well. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, we'll see you guys again on Monday for uh, Last Week in Cannabis. And uh, if you guys have any questions, just feel, feel free to write us. So we're definitely going to try and get more, more grow questions on the show. So, uh, you know, please ask them. <laughs> definitely, Alrighty. definitely. All right, guys. Uh, we'll see you uh, next episode. Take care.